Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, today I wanted to take a look at some objections to the Molinist position that I've been arguing for as to how we could be truly free in a libertarian sense in heaven and yet never, ever, ever sin throughout all of eternity. There are a couple objections that have been raised to this particular view by some of the scholars that I was researching and reading during my thesis process. And I just wanted to address those because I think that it's important to acknowledge and work through objections to a particular viewpoint, whatever that view happens to be. It is usually not helpful to ignore critiques of a position because If it turns out that they're correct, then you should change what you believe. And if it turns out that they are incorrect in some way, then you've strengthened why you believe what you believe. So looking at contrary opinions or objections is never really a bad thing. And I would include even the Christian worldview in that. Looking at objections and pushback against why Christians believe what they believe can be a healthy pursuit for a Christian as long as they're not uh, becoming imbalanced in how much time they spend looking at attacks. They also need to be reading both sides as they go. All that to say, I wanted to look at a couple objections in particular that come from some of the authors that I've quoted up to this point who held differing views. One of their objections, and I'm just going to go ahead and quote them here, They write in an article that was from a scholarly journal about this particular topic. They they say this, This Molinism-inspired solution to the problem of heavenly freedom faces a dilemma. Either the redeemed in heaven are such that it is possible for them to sin given their moral characters, or it is not. If the former, in other words, if it's possible for them to sin, then this solution does not do justice to the heavenly perfection of of the redeemed. The redeemed are supposed to be perfected in heaven. If the redeemed are able to sin, then they are not perfected. But if the redeemed is perfected such that they are no longer able to sin, then the truth of Molinism would be superfluous to the problem of heavenly freedom. In other words, on their view, a person who would take a position like the one that I hold, you either would have to accept that in some way, in heaven, we will be less than fully perfect since the possibility of sinning is still a live option for us, or you would need to embrace the notion of impeccability, which the Molinist view doesn't need. It's superfluous to to that view. As I argued uh, a few episodes ago, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that we cannot sin in heaven, only that we will not sin. So if we are to go back and look at sort of this dilemma and and determine whether or not it is even a actual dilemma in the first place, the first part of this dilemma, this idea that being peccable, in other words, being logically able to sin, even if you never actually sin, 
somehow needs to be equated with imperfection of some sort. I'm not sure how it does or how that follows logically. Because remember, the position that I've argued for here is that while those in heaven could sin, that none of them actually ever will. And so I'm not sure how you would consider the possibility of sin a imperfection in some way, especially, again, in considering the biblical data that we have, say, with Adam. God created Adam, said that it was good. There was nothing, there was nothing evil or unjust about what God did. And yet we know that Adam could sin. It doesn't mean that he had to sin. And that is why God could look at his creation and call it good. He did not create anything evil necessarily. So it's a little bit confusing, I think. And, and this might just be because I think the objection is a little confused, to be, to be honest. Why we should judge people based upon what is possible for them to do rather than what they will in fact actually do. Because the position is that in heaven, everyone will in actuality never sin. Now, I'm not sure how you could look at a actually sinless eternity and conclude that there's some imperfection there, simply because there's a logical possibility that it could be otherwise. Think of it this way. Do we do we judge people based on what they do or what it is logically possible for them to do? Well, we only judge people based on what they actually do. Honestly, it would be kind of scary to think about an environment where people were judged based on what they could potentially do. But that's not what is required here, nor is that the view. And so just because we could sin, once again, does not mean that we will sin. In fact, I think that those two ideas are completely logically consistent with one another. That uh, just because I could jump off a bridge does not mean that I will, in fact, do so. And so there's just no conflict here. There's just no, and, and there is absolutely no reason to think that just because we could choose to sin, even though we never will in heaven, that somehow that equates to some sort of imperfection in our characters. I just don't think that that follows at all. Another sort of sticking point for these gentlemen in their objections to this view is that they seem to think that if we are not made impeccable so that it is not even logically possible for us to sin, then that that requires that God must somehow always and forever be actively working to prevent people from sinning. And it's almost as if they conceive of a state where if God isn't constantly vigilant, if God isn't always working to sort of undermine our potential to sin, that we will just inevitably do so. And again, I'm not sure that that follows. I don't know that there, there's any reason to conclude that. No, not only because that's not the picture that we get in the, the view of end times and the heavenly kingdom in books like Revelation, but also that's not what the view requires of God. In other words, we're not saying, I'm not saying that the only reason we won't be sinless 
is because God is just going to continue to work on us and to make it so that we'll never do that. I'm saying we'll freely choose to be that way. God isn't going to have to sort of prop us up for all of eternity at all, that we are going to freely make these choices. So God doesn't need to always be working to prevent sin because he just knows that it's never going to happen. One more objection that we'll look at today, and this is that if heaven is just a place where we really are free, but that the fact that there is no sin in heaven is basically left up to our free creaturely choices, then that somehow undermines God's sovereignty, that this this actuality of a sinless heaven is basically all up to us. And that undermines, as I said, and and basically destroys the concept of sovereignty. I don't think that it does, because once again, I think that this is a mischaracterization of the view. I would be one of the first people to stand up and say that God's sovereignty drives all of this. And it is only on the basis of God's sovereignty and knowledge and understanding of all of these unbelievably complex interactions that we can even read a prophetic passage like what we do in Revelation about what the life to come will be like. So it's only because of God's knowledge and planning and wisdom that he can tell us what we will freely do for all of eternity. And it's not as if at any moment's notice, we could sort of mess it all up and pull God out of the driver's seat here and and sort of take over. That's not that's not what I think any serious Christian would believe about God. God is so much bigger than that. And so what we are saying is that what ends up happening in heaven wouldn't have to have taken place exactly the way that it did. It's just that God knows exactly what will take place because he knows what we will freely choose in any given set of circumstances. And so God's knowledge of our free choices sort of align and come together in such a way where God simply knows that we will freely choose good forever. And if that had been different, God would have known different. Moreover, the only reason that God knows that we will freely choose good forever is because he knows that the circumstances that lead up to our eternity in heaven have prepared us uniquely to make those free choices forever. Namely, the experiential knowledge that we all have, uh, as I alluded to in yesterday's episode. So again, some of this is very heady stuff. It gets into very philosophical territory. And as we're wrapping up this season, again, I didn't want to make this a main focus because, again, it is very heady stuff, but it is something that I think just demonstrates, if nothing else, that some of these issues are incredibly nuanced and incredibly, incredibly complex, and they require very careful, very careful thought in not only constructing our positions uh, of, of our theology, but also in defending them and and sort of critiquing other positions that are out there as well. Theology matters. And I think that while it can be boring or tiresome, 
in, in some cases that the general idea that we ought to take ideas about God and his character and who he is and what kind of being God is seriously, and we ought to dedicate all available resources that we have, not just, I don't mean financially, but even just with our mental capacity and our time and things like that to considering such questions of what kind of being God is really like based on scripture. I think these are important pursuits. And these are ones that, as you can see, if you're, if you're ever in scholarly circles or academic circles, you can see that this, this rabbit hole goes deep. And if that's you, if that's something that appeals to you, I would just suggest that there are lots of great programs out there that you can pursue. If you are interested in formal education or just deepening your knowledge about some of these more technical aspects, I happened to go through the MA of Christian Apologetics program at Biola, which I just found out in an email this past week is now entirely online. It was a it was a hybrid program when I went through it, meaning I had to spend some time on campus each year. It's now entirely online. So uh, they have another MA in science and religion, which again is another, I think, worthwhile pursuit. Just understanding the world that God made, understanding why we believe what we believe, and, and being able to get down and dirty on sort of a very technical scholarly level if that's what's needed. Now, that might not be what God has called you to. And if that's the case, then that's fine. We all have different roles to play in the body. I'm just suggesting that if this is something that really is interesting to you or something that you have been thinking about or praying about pursuing more fully, then you might want to consider something like that because I think that it could help equip you to be more effective in whatever conversations and relationships you happen to find yourself in where you have opportunities to be salt and light and to witness to people and to to share the gospel ultimately. That's what really it boils down to is being able to defend our worldview and to to show that it is reasonable so that we gain a platform to share the good news about what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. 